Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. You feel it. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, it is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, a startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. Welcome to the syndicate the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. The biggest problem I see with quantum is just what is quantum? No one knows. So let's dive right into it. Yeah. So I'll tell you, uh, so the interesting history of quantum mechanics. So in the early 20th century, when people first started accessing, you know, individual atoms and electrons and all of that, the, it became pretty apparent from the experimental results that people got playing with these things, that it wasn't simply a miniaturized version of what we experience in our daily lives. So, you know, when you're in high school, you see those pictures of, you know, proton with an electron going around like a little orbiting solar system. It turns out that the laws of physics at the time said that atoms couldn't exist, that the electrons would spiral into the nucleus and radiate all the energy away. And so all of the physics up until the early 1900s couldn't explain the existence of atoms, actually said they shouldn't exist. And so there was a foundational problem with our ideas about the world at the most fundamental level. The theories that replaced that was called quantum theory. And 
if you look at the mathematics that underlies quantum theory and you take it seriously, it says some startling things about the nature of the world. So in the context of quantum computing, you may have heard this term. Sometimes people will say there's multiple interpretations of quantum mechanics. One of them is called many worlds, where there's many parallel universes. First of all, that's a, that's a huge misnomer. There are not lots of interpretations. There are people who suggest new kinds of physics. You've probably heard this thing like you have some quantum system. It's uh, realizing every possible alternative at the same time. But when you look, somehow that all collapses, right? There were, there were these funny ideas because when you weren't making a measurement on a system, it was acting as if it could live out every possible alternative. But of course, when you measured something, you would get one or the other of those alternatives available to that system. And so people started in, uh, creating these ad hoc ideas, like measurement was somehow some mystical process that involved consciousness provoking reality into existence. We know that that's not true. So I'll tell you quantum mechanics in a nutshell and quantum computing in a nutshell. So if you look at something called the Schrodinger equation, and you just you don't try to make some ad hoc additions to it to make it fit your intuitions. You just say, what do the equations tell us? Well, normally, if you had, say, an electron in one position from point A and going to point B, you tend to think of it taking a particular trajectory right through space. What the quantum mechanical equations will say is that that electron takes every possible path sort of simultaneously. So you can think about this as all of these parallel streams of reality or you could talk about parallel universes, and in each universe, it takes a different path, okay? And when you see things that are quantum dynamical, those different alternatives can share information. That's called quantum interference. So an example, a prosaic example I often give of quantum computing is just this. Imagine I go to the Library of Congress, and so here's a problem you know, I'm giving, giving you. I'm going to go through the 50 million books or whatever it is. I'll find a particular volume. I'll put an X in one of the pages and put it back. And then I say, Matt, I'd like you to go find the X. Well, unless you're extraordinarily lucky, you're going to kind of think to yourself, well, okay, I'm going to pick the first book, flip through the pages, go to the next one, etc. And because you're going through them sequentially, and because there's a vast number of them, it's going to take you many lifetimes to find the X on average, right? Now imagine if the world is behaving like people saw atoms and electrons behave. Imagine that uh, I could take you, Matt, and put you in what's called a quantum superposition. So you take on this quantum dynamical character where there's 50 million mats in 50 million libraries, and they each try a different alternative simultaneously. So they try, each one tries a different book. In one of those universes, it's the first book you chose, right? So now you've found the X. The problem is when people did quantum dynamical experiments, they would say, well, it's as if all those choices are taking place. Uh, but if I go to measure that system, if I open the door to ask one of the mats, I'll typically see one of the mats with some probability and likely one of them that didn't find the book because only one of them did. The way that quantum computing solves that problem is what's called quantum coherent evolution. So imagine all those mats, they cohere in the sense that they can talk to each other across the different strands of reality. So the mat that found the X raises his hand, assuming all the other mats can see him because they're cohering. And uh, now you've shared the information across all of those branches of reality. Now, if I were to make an inquiry, it doesn't matter which mat I talk to, they all have the answer. So it was actually a, a, uh, this uh, brilliant 
theoretical physicist David Deutsch in the 80s who figured out how to use these parallel streams and then have them interfere and share information like the mats to be able to do something that you could never do with a classical computer that you could think of a classical computer on being on one branch of reality, doing things sequentially. What if I had access to all those other branches and they could collaborate on solving problems? Then I could look at a vast number uh, of possible solutions, compare them, and uh, get an answer in moments that would otherwise take lifetimes. So that's really quantum computing in a nutshell. You have access to this vast array of these parallel streams where you can have different alternatives, or they could be different parts of a complex calculation, and they can collaborate and share information in this sort of vast landscape. And you say, okay, well, that's really, that's what's going on in the world. Why is it that I don't see that? So this was one of the the great questions that quantum mechanics brought up. In 1957, a guy named Hugh Everett said, let's take the equation seriously. And what they tell us is that there's all these parallel streams of reality or many worlds in which different alternatives are being played out. And under the right circumstances, they can interfere and influence each other. Okay, but why don't we see that in our, in our everyday life? Okay, so now let's say I'm looking at a macroscopic object. So right now I'm, I'm looking at a, a, a cup of tea that I have on my desk. Here was the fundamental insight. Unlike an electron, which is so small and, and is unlikely to interact with its surroundings very much, so it doesn't tend to bump into an air molecule or, or uh, with a particle of light, a photon, it doesn't interact very much. But large-scale objects like this cup of tea on my desk, there's you know, billions of air molecules bounding into the surface of that cup. There's light, photons, both that you can see and you can't see, electromagnetic fields. It's sitting on a table whose atoms are wiggling around, right? So all of those external environmental factors that that object interacts with causes those parallel streams to decohere in a way that they no longer share information. So I'll give you a prosaic example, just like the library. So I'll go back to the library example. Imagine I put you in this quantum superposition where there's 50 million mats and 50 million libraries, okay? But the windows are open, which means you can see the outside world and interact with things around you. Well, let's say one of the mats sees uh, a coffee shop and says, you know, I'd really like to get a cup of coffee. So that one of those strands, that mat becomes entangled with the coffee shop, gets involved with that other outside influence. Another mat Maybe there's a theater across the street playing a movie he's wanted to see. So he stops looking at the book and he goes across the street. Uh, third map, maybe you see a pretty girl that you've wanted to say hello to. So what happens is these different mats in these different parallel alternatives get entangled with these uh, external entities in the environment, the theater, the coffee shop, the girl, and it causes them to decohere. They no longer talk to each other across those universes. And when that happens, you lose the collaboration. And now if you look at each mat individually, say the mat who went to the coffee shop, he gets entangled with that. Then maybe meet some friends there who say, you should come visit us in Spain. And he goes to Spain. And so the more he gets involved with uh, the external world in more complicated ways, the less likely that mat is ever uh, likely to encounter any of the other versions of himself. Hey, Matt here. Give yourself a clap on the back. It was really technical for a second there, but you made it to this point. Eric's about to jump into the simplest and best explanation I've ever seen for quantum computing. So make sure you stay tuned. You got your ears on and you buzzed yourself with some coffee. So you're ready to rock. So all of those versions that decohered will believe that they're one branch 
There's no other versions of them. And that process called decoherence is what people started understanding in the 1980s and 90s, that it was these external interactions with the environment that would cause these parallel streams to decohere, stop sharing information. And then, of course, you would lose the power of the collaboration. And so we now understand that what we call quantum mechanics is when those parallel realities are aware of each other. When those branches are far apart and they don't interact significantly, that's what you call classical mechanics. So that's really what quantum mechanics is if you take the equation seriously. There's sometimes people who debate this. Usually it's kind of, it's because they just don't like that idea, but this is what the equations tell us. And what's been fascinating over the last 20, 30 years is that, okay, now let's say, uh, I say to you, Matt, I just told you why your mats decohere and stop looking for the book. So I would ask you, how would I keep those 50 million mats collaborating? What would you do? You would need to ping each of them to get them back somehow. Well, no, let's say before, before they decohere, what would you do? Close the windows. That's right. So you would isolate those, that system of mats from those outside influences that could pull those strands apart. So in the mid-80s, people started looking, doing calculations with decoherence. Uh, one example of that is uh, the Nobel Prize winner, Tony Leggett, where they said, okay, how do I shut the windows you know, on a system that I want to show quantum coherent behavior? Coherence meaning the strands cohere to each other and share information and, and awareness of each other. And in those calculations, they were able to show that under the right conditions that were experimentally achievable, you could reduce the decoherence enough to see these quantum effects at macroscopic scales. Hey, Matt here. If your mind hasn't been blown, it's about to be. Things are about to get crazy. So in, in the year 2000 at uh, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, scientists were able to take a ring of metal, of superconducting metal, and first they took it to very, very low temperatures, millikelvin, just a few thousandths of a degrees above absolute zero. So it's not, there are no atoms uh, on the substrate it's sitting on that are wiggling. Then you go to ultra high vacuum, pump all the air out so you don't have air molecules bounding into the surface of this metal ring. Now put layers and layers of shielding to keep out, you know, visible light and infrared radiation and all that. So basically you're closing the windows on this system, very low temperatures, ultra high vacuum, get rid of all the light. And now under those conditions, they were able to take this superconducting ring and in one stream of reality, they had uh, a current of electrons going around the ring, say counterclockwise. So there was a current going around counterclockwise and simultaneously clockwise. And now this is very important. You often hear this thing about Schrodinger's cat that is alive and dead at the same time. That's nonsense. What's really going on is you have a, you know, a live cat in one stream of reality, a dead cat in the other stream of reality, and under the right conditions, you could get quantum interference and see that there was an awareness of you know, the, those two strands interacting. So what they did in this experiment in 2000 was they had a ring. In one universe, you got counterclockwise uh, current. In another was it's clockwise. And there was a feature in the experiment called a, you know, an energy level splitting, where you could see these two universes talking to each other. You could see the different currents going around the rings in different ways interacting. And of course, in your experiment, there's one ring, but when it goes into a quantum superposition, it's living out these two seemingly uh, exclusive alternatives of all the current going clockwise and counterclockwise. But you could see it live these two alternatives in these parallel streams, and you could see evidence of the interference between them. 
Well, that was in the New York Times. It said Schrodinger's cat lives. And the reason it said that was it was the first time that objects at that scale were shown to have quantum coherent behavior, where you could see it living out different alternatives in these parallel streams of reality, and that they knew about each other and could, could interfere and share information. That ring, as it turns out, is the basis of uh, the D-Wave quantum computer. We actually build these superconducting rings. You know, there's more complex features in them. But the basic idea is current going around one way is a zero. Current going around the other way, say clockwise, is a, is a one. You can put these rings into a superposition of encoding both of those binary digits, and they can talk to each other. And as you put, if you put arrays of these rings together, the number of possible alternatives you can explore grows dramatically, and in the best case, exponentially. So every time you would add a ring, you know, first you could have two possibilities, then four, then eight, then 16. So the number of possible configurations of uh, these ones and zeros or currents in the ring kind of blow up exponentially with the number of rings. Why is that important to solve problems? I could give you a very mundane example. So for instance, let's say you look at uh, an organization like FedEx. Well, a big problem for FedEx is I have all these packages and I have all these, uh, they're in different locations, they're gonna come to different hubs. Then I have to figure out routing strategies, which packages do I send through which hubs and which trucks you know, on which routes to get to their customers. And what you'd like to know is, is there a routing strategy that would minimize the total energy expenditure and fuel costs and manpower, somehow I can reduce the resources required to do that. Well, no one can do that problem at scale because you have to search through a vast number of routing strategies. And you say, ah, but what if I could take a computer that I could put into a quantum superposition where it could look at a vast number of alternative routing strategies in different parallel universes at the same time, and then through quantum interference by sharing information, they could compare the resource requirements for each route ex extremely fast. Whereas on a, on a classical computer, I'd have to look at each route one at a time sequentially. And even if you could do that fast uh, for each route, the number of routes is so vast that you'll never get there with classical computing. With a quantum computer, you could imagine optimizing that process, finding the best routing strategy or the best airline schedule or the best way to distribute your energy on your grid. And so there's a huge, there's a vast number of problems that we face as humans in our complex civilization right now, whether it's in energy distribution, in healthcare, in uh, finance, you know, you have these, all of these companies and all these stocks interacting in complex ways. Is there somewhere to arrange investments where you could maximize returns and minimize risks or market crashes from some unexpected complex interactions? You know, you want to model, if you want to model the behavior of molecules at any scale, it stymies our, our greatest supercomputers because those molecules behave quantum dynamically, and oftentimes you're looking at all of these electrons interacting in all these different ways, living out all these alternatives, and you're trying to model a quantum system that has many branches on the tree with classical systems that have a single branch on the tree. And so why quantum computing is so exciting is, from my perspective, is that you're harnessing these parallel streams of reality where you can look at a vast number of alternatives and compare them and 
make much better decisions, save resources at scale, optimize uh, our industries at scale, solve really difficult problems. And, you know, there's a whole host of things we're looking at now in, you know, AI and machine learning and optimization for problems that are ubiquitous throughout this civilization we've built. And, and my personal feeling about quantum computing, why I got interested in it, one, as a physicist, it's like we could build machines that access these parallel realities, but it's not enough just to do it because it's cool. I mean, there's basic research that it's cool, but if I'm going to build a company and take a lot of investment, we want to solve big problems, big societal, ecological, industrial problems on earth in every sector of human endeavor. And I don't see our civilization simplifying and getting smaller anytime soon. And we don't have the tools to model that world adequately. We don't have the tools to make the best decisions we could make to you know, uh, minimize risks of system crashes or optimize uh, our industries uh, or our scientific understandings of the world at large. And so that's what's so exciting. So you can really think about it like I have this vast, sometimes they call it Hilbert space, which is just a mathematical construct saying there's a huge number of alternatives you can explore simultaneously. And when you have coherent dynamics, when they know about each other, they can share this information and do things that are uh, unimaginably powerful compared to being on a single branch of that classical tree. So to see if I can summarize a little bit, when you get to a sufficiently, a sufficiently small scale, so the quantum scale, you're in the situation both size and environment-wise, where there's so little reacting or acting on a specific particle that it's more or less just chaos. There's no particular way to predict it. So everything is happening at once in a, in a chaos or an entropy-type situation. But as you get... Well, it's not, it's, not even, it's not so much chaos. It's like it is deterministic. So this is also a misunderstanding where they say quantum mechanics is probabilistic. It's not so much... It seems probabilistic when... When you make a measurement, uh, you know, you have two systems that look like they're the same. You make a measurement on them, you get different results. It's more accurate to say that every alternative that can happen does. When you make the measurement, you don't know which branch you'll end up on. That's, that's where, where it looks probabilistic. But all those branches being there are, are what quantum mechanics... And, and like I said, there's, there's two conditions to make it quantum mechanical. You have, your, you have all these different alternatives, and their coherent evolution is where they interfere and they, they exchange information. When they decohere, which is the, from these uh, interactions with the environment, that's when you're on one branch and you don't know about the others. And that's what you call your classical reality. And what you said at the very beginning was the right idea. The reason we tended to see quantum mechanics at small scales is because very small things like electrons are so small that they don't interact with their environment much. For the electron, you know, the windows in the library are closed pretty much. For large-scale objects, it's much harder to isolate them, right? There's air and light, radiation, and molecules bounding into their surfaces. So in order to have macroscopic quantum coherence, we have to build these rarefied environments of very low temperature and ultra-high vacuum and radiation shielded. But, um, but this is a really important point. I've actually said this to a number of journalists, and for some reason, they keep telling the same story. They say that Quantum mechanics is the physics of the very small, and classical mechanics is the physics of the large. That's absolutely wrong. Quantum mechanics is the physics of everything. Decoherence is what, it make, what makes it look classical. So 
we now see quantum mechanics at large scales. You know, the objects in the D-Wave processor you see with the naked eye and you make them using, you know, semiconductor techniques to make chips. They're not atomic at all. You can look at our chip and our, our, our qubits are big and you can see them with the naked eye. And those objects are going into these quantum superpositions, living out different alternatives that talk to each other at macroscopic scales. There's a question that a lot of physicists are fascinated by, which is, how far can we take this? How big can physical systems get if we can suppress the decoherence? And can we see quantum coherent dynamics at, at you know, larger, ever larger scales? And so people keep building systems to see how far you can take it. Are there any fundamental limits we don't understand? But uh, like I said, it's, it's interesting because a lot of physicists, I think, are uncomfortable expressing quantum mechanics that way. And usually I find that it's just a personal preference. They don't know much about uh, decoherence, the process of decoherence. You know, they, they learned quantum mechanics a long time ago. They learned what I call the orthodoxy. You know, before you measure, there's a bunch of potential. And after you measure, you provoke one of those potentials into existence. You can't get that out of the equations of quantum mechanics. It, it's not consistent with the mathematics. What's consistent with the mathematics is that every alternative that can happen does. And decoherence will cause these uh, different branches to no longer know about each other. But it's not like they go away. They just live out their own lives with these different alternatives playing out unaware of each other. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. Quantum computing has the power to change the way we think about the world, the way we think about the future. And you know what? We looked into your future. There's a lot of possibilities. We found that in that in that future, in that alternative universe where you leave a review for Fringe FM, you might just maybe have some incredible karma points coming your way. So obviously this is a bit of a joke, but seriously, fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Stitcher, if you guys could leave us a review, that would be incredibly helpful for us. And it's something where just taking that action and helping us get in front of more individuals out there ideally it improves their lives. You'll probably feel pretty good about it because you're doing something to both help them and help us out. And you know what? Maybe we can make the world just a bit of a better place. It might be worth a shot. Fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Stitcher. But now back to Eric. So it's really that quantum mechanics is parallel realities aware of each other. What you call classical mechanics is when they're not aware of each other. And we've now built physical systems where we created the conditions under which macroscopic systems can live out all these different alternatives that can collaborate on solving problems. 
And because at large scale, things become, I believe the term is decoherent. This, it seems to mm-hmm. imply the multi-worlds theory or the, the multi-universe theory. Can you go into what the general consensus and thoughts are from a physics sense? And- yeah, so from a physics sense, so like I said, if you take this to its logical conclusion, so you, for instance, right now, Matt, right? You're uh, highly decohered. So if there's other mats, you know, if I were to introduce you to your other mats, you'd say, well, I guess the universe is that way. What a, what a trip, right? And different mats, you know, maybe one chose a different career, uh, different relationship, you know, a different course through history. So if you keep percolating quantum mechanics up, if you just take it seriously, then it would, there would be a number of worlds where all these different alternatives were playing out, but they were unaware of each other. Because in your case, you're strongly interacting with your environment, right? There's air molecules and photons and all that stuff. And um, so that's what, that's what uh, Hugh Everett way back when meant by many worlds. If you take quantum mechanics seriously, that's what it implies. And I, I think uh, when people say there's other interpretations, like, well, there's the collapse interpretation where when you look at collapses, all the other universes but one, it's not true that that's an interpretation. That would be a new physical theory because you can't get the quantum mechanical mathematics, the Schrodinger equation, to have collapse, uh, create collapse. There is no way to get collapse out of those equations. They just kind of added it ad hoc, right? Whereas the people who did decoherence stuff said, oh, we know why you don't see those other branches, and we know the process by which they decohere. And actually, there's been lots of experiments since the 80s on isolating systems adequately and watching things become more and more coherent, exactly as the, the, the theory would predict. So what seems to be consistent is that these alternatives play out. They're not potentialities, they're realities, because otherwise quantum computing doesn't work. If I do a quantum computation, that required all these different branches to do part of the problem. The only way it works is if each one of those parts actually happened. You can't, you can't solve a problem by something that could have happened. It had to happen. So these different alternatives are actualized. And if you coherently evolve them, meaning they can share information, then that's a quantum computer. So there's people work a lot to try to mitigate decoherence. That's why they're hard to build. If you keep percolating that up, so what the theory says about measurement, like me looking, right? So if I go back to the library example, let's say there's a 50 million mats and they're all looking at uh, different books. If I open the door, what the equations say is that I become entangled with that superposition. And now there's a bunch of versions of me, each one which talks to a different mat, right? And then it keeps going. And so you have these many worlds with these different alternatives playing out. And um, that's really quantum mechanics in a nutshell. So if someone were to say, what does quantum mechanics say about the world? It says that there's this multiplicity where every alternative that can happen does. Under the right circumstances, they can know about each other, coherent evolution. And when, they're, when you have these interactions with external uh, environmental factors, they can decohere and not know about each other. And those individual branches experience classical dynamics. So the, the boundary between classical and quantum is whether the universes know about each other or not. Now, in terms of how does the scientific community think about this? It used to be when Everett, I think in 57, first came out with Many Worlds and said, let's take quantum mechanics seriously, there was a lot of skepticism and pushback, and it seems like extravagant, like, really? Come on. I mean, all these universes, I don't like that. Uh, Not liking it's not a reason. But what I used to say to people when, when they would say that, it's kind of funny. You know, there was a time in human history where humans believed that the entire universe was the Earth and the solar system, you know, a few planets that they could see in the night sky, right? And, um, and then at some point, people said, well, that's the universe. 
And then they saw these little smudges, you know, in their telescopes. Or, well, let's say first they saw the Milky Way, right? So you see that band of diffuse light. And it's like, oh, oh, wait a minute. There's, you know, well, now we know hundreds of billions of stars in this thing called a galaxy. And all of a sudden our conception of the world grew radically from the sun and a few planets to the galaxy. So now that's the universe, right? Wow, that's kind of extravagant. Hundreds of billions of stars and we're just one of them, you know, in a you know, backwater neighborhood somewhere out toward the edge of the Milky Way. And then people started seeing smudges on these images. And as telescopes got better, they realized there were other galaxies. And those galaxies uh, were like ours and hundreds of billions. And then you saw, of course, the Hubble, the, the amazing Hubble images where you look in a, in a relatively modest section of the sky and you're seeing untold numbers of galaxies, each of which has hundreds of billions of stars and it seems to go on forever and ever. And so we've already gone through the experience of having this very provincial conception of the universe and it keeps growing beyond imagination, right? And so to me, it's not so surprising that, well, you know, we look at these quantum systems and it's like, look at this, even within our own universe, even within experiments on our tabletop, there's a richness and scale and multiplicity that was unexpected. And now we're harnessing it. And if we can harness that multiplicity, we could solve uh, or help to solve major problems that have come up because of this complex civilization we've built. And that's what's so exciting. It's uh, that there's a new resource available to us that might be able to deal with the complexity of the world. Because uh, like I said, it's often underappreciated. We, in every industry, in every human affair, you know, you can look at something, you know, I, I talked about finance or energy distribution, all of those, every area of human endeavor, you know, say healthcare, you have a lot of elements that interact with each other in very complex ways. You know, it could be stocks in a portfolio. And there are certain combinations of interactions that could give rise to, say, a system crash, you know, a financial collapse that no one would, would ever predict because we can't analyze all the scenarios of these complex systems. And if it doesn't crash, it's certainly running incredibly suboptimally, just like the FedEx example. So if I could sort through a vast number of possible alternatives and compare their, their merits, and I could do that routinely in all kinds of industries and in science and in trying to understand our ecosystem and our effects on it and all these things, I think it could be a great boon to humankind. Because I personally... You know, when I got into physics, I, I did it because I was interested in what is all of this? How does the universe work? Uh, you know, what's the, the nature of, of, of the universe at its most fundamental level? How did consciousness arise? All of that stuff had fascinated me. But I also live in a world where there's existential crises facing us in the degradation of the biosphere, right? In the, uh, in the way that, in the vast inefficiencies in which we use resources, and so for me, combining, you know, sort of a, a deep curiosity about the nature of nature, but do something to kind of solve some pressing problems at this critical time in human history, I think quantum computing is something that combines that for me. And for a lot of the people in the field, it's, it's drawing in some of the best and brightest people because it's, it's sort of akin to, to discovering fire, right? It's, um, there was a resource out there that people didn't understand. Maybe, you, you know, you see a some lightning hit the ground and see a burning branch and you're like, what is this magical thing? And eventually people learned how to make this fire arise and then figure out how it could, you know, maybe improve their lives. I could cook my food. I could keep predators at bay. Once I understand its properties, I can, you know, make a bellows and make it hotter and maybe smelt metal, you know, and all of that. 
And I think quantum computing represents that kind of advance. It's, it's accessing sort of these, uh, a way to explore a lot of alternatives. And you don't have to build, you know, like I said, with this ring, I don't have to build lots of the rings. The ring I can put into these coherent superpositions where that same ring is living out all these alternatives and these parallel realities and, and they're sharing information. So for modest resources, you access this vast reality. And like I said, you know, yeah, for people who find that a strange idea, it's happened to us before, say with my example of solar system to galaxy to many galaxies to who knows what, right? We never seek to be astonished at how rich the universe is the deeper we look. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. So you brought up before how it's so human to assume this is all there is. What are the thoughts and have you thought about the fact that perhaps other other species, other civilizations have discovered quantum computing and we're just a simulation they're running to see the best scenario? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this comes up a lot and it's there's a great book by uh, the, so what, who I consider the founder of quantum computing, David Deutsch, called The Fabric of Reality. And um, one of the things he talks about with quantum computers, you know, is that eventually you could imagine doing perfect virtual simulations, right, that would mimic, you know, the universe perfectly. And, uh, you know, is it possible, you know, if, if you live in a simulation and it, it has sort of a perfect fidelity to the universe or it has the richness that we experience in our own life. And, and, and of course, as humans, we only see a very small slice of reality without our scientific instruments to extend the range of our senses. But even with the richness that we experience as human beings, yeah, you could imagine something like that. There's a fascinating ideas about, you know, you understand the laws of physics well enough. Eventually, we could affect the structure of space and time, uh, or we could create any input to this neural net that we wanted and create, you know, any reality we could imagine. And so, you know, if you were in that reality and the experiments you're doing in that reality respond in some consistent way, it'd be very difficult to tell that that wasn't the case. You know, is it possible some super beings built quantum computers and built a vast simulation? It's like, sure. And how would you ever know? You know, every experiment I, I'd be doing would be with tools that themselves were part of the simulation, right? And the results I'm getting back. It's an intriguing idea. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer. It's certainly possible. The question was, reality feels a lot like a fractal. And when you're coding something, you always want it to get more complex. So that's kind of, that's kind of the nature of that. How do, you, how do you think about the future? Where, what is your future? What are you thinking towards, working towards with D-Wave and outside? Yeah, so I think, um, uh, you know, this, the, you know I'll, I'll, my inner geek, you know, I, I, um, I've said this at a lot of talks. I, you know, I watched a lot of Star Trek when I was growing up, you know, and things like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and, you know, all that. And um, there was a lot of, um, at that time, a lot of those series were made not too far away from, you know, during the Cold War and all of that. And there were already understandings in the 70s, you know, with films like Soylent Green that were already talking about climate change and environmental degradation and all that. And, you know, we're in this technological adolescence where our cleverness is outstripping our wisdom. And, you know, my, my view of reality that I hoped to aspire to when I was a kid was sort of Gene Roddenberry's vision, right? Where we get through our techni technological adolescence. We, we don't do ourselves in with nukes. We, we don't deplete the planet's resources or destroy the atmosphere and turn into Venus and all that stuff. We kind of get through that. And, and it requires, you know, a couple of key things. One, we have to have the knowledge of how to do that. So how do we organize a civilization at scale to be sustainable 
and uh, in the long term, and then go to the stars, right? Eventually colonize the galaxy and all that. That's always been my vision. I like the idea that it took billions of years for this intelligent life form to evolve. And um, it would be a shame, you know, anytime you go out to the ocean or you go to Yosemite, it's like such an extraordinary planet with all these beautiful life forms. And you could imagine this persisting for billions of more years or being trashed by a species that was clever, but not very wise. So for me, it's, you know, what kind of tools do we need to accelerate our understandings? I see quantum computing as a very powerful tool to accelerate our understandings of nature, of complex systems, which our civilization is, and how to optimize and design to rapidly evolve the design of our civilization and systems. So that's part one. Hey, Matt here. Do you find this fascinating? I know I do. Civilization design is incredibly interesting. And it's exactly what we talked about with Daniel Schmachtenberger of Neurohacker Collective. If you guys haven't checked out that episode, it's episode 31. Just go to fringe.fm and search for Daniel, search for Neurohacker, search for civilization, anything along those lines. You'll find the episode. It's an incredibly interesting and thought-provoking one. And we hope that you enjoy and it helps you think about the future in a little bit more of a complete, well-rounded way. Because you know what? Systems are what we're living in. None of us have a single variable. That's life. Of course, part two is you have to have the right kind of vision and ethics. And, you know, it's not just about technical solutions. It's about a worldview. Certainly for D-Wave in the shorter term, in order to be a viable business, we had some visionary investors that invested in us. You know, some of them have similar visions, like how are we going to solve all these huge problems on earth in energy and healthcare and finance and, and, and ecosystem management, all of that. I think quantum mechanics, uh, quantum computing, and, and more generally, quantum mechanics is very powerful uh, sort resources in nature that we can harness to help us solve a, a vast array of problems. Um, you know, something like material design. We, we just came out recently, if you go on the internet, uh, we published two beautiful papers on simulating matter with our quantum processors. So this was a dream of, you know, the great physicist Richard Feynman, where, uh, you know, when, when we used to build aircraft, for example, people would have an idea about the shape of a wing or a fuselage or something, and you'd have to build a scale model, you know, sometimes for hundreds of thousands of dollars and stick it in a wind tunnel and see how it behaved. So every iteration of design was really expensive and time consuming. Eventually, we had powerful enough computers, classical computers, to uh, and take the fluid dynamical equations about how fluids, air, flow over surfaces. And you could have a designer sitting at a computer, I'll try this wing design, that wing design, and then turn on and let it simulate the physics. And so you could much more rapidly design aircraft that had much lower drag coefficients and better fuel efficiencies and all that, right? Similarly, we would like to do that with with matter. What if we could build something lighter than aluminum and much stronger than the, the strongest steel? How would we arrange the atoms and molecules to do that? Or how would we build the right kind of molecules for new, you know, healthcare treatments or drugs? Or how could we design, you know, much more efficient solar cells? Hey, Matt here. If you're interested in graphene and other metamaterials, we just had two really, really interesting interviews with John Leto, founder of the leading graphene company today, Vorbeck, and Joseph Meany, a molecular researcher focused on the origin and future of graphene. Both of those can be found at fringe.fm. If you just search for graphene, you'll find them, and we hope that you enjoy. Well, right now, um, it's kind of like the when they were building prototype aircraft. Classical computers don't do an adequate job of simulating matter. It's very difficult to do these 
you know, simulations of matter or calculations on how matter will behave because the matter and the microscopic constituents have quantum dynamics, you know, many branches on the tree. And it's hard to, to, for quantum computers to uh, deal with that, that complexity. We just did a couple of papers where we simulated the dynamics of something called a spin glass. Uh, we also simulated the dynamics of something called a topological phase of matter that was uh, predicted by the Nobel 2016 Nobel Prize winners. These are examples of how you could use a quantum computer to simulate the dynamics of matter and if you could do it at scale, you might be able to do something like, okay, what kind of material stack do I have to put together that will very efficiently convert photons into electricity? What if I could make a 90% efficient solar cell? Well, it would be game-changing, right? Because right now, maybe they're, I don't know, commercially produced solar cells. Are they 16% efficient or something like that? Um, and all of a sudden, if they were 90% efficient, you'd need a lot less land with a lot less solar cells, generating a lot more energy, get away from these, uh, these destructive fossil fuels and all that. So that's the kind of thing I look at. And in, in, in our company, there's an entire ecosystem because D-Wave built a company where we built working quantum processors that are, are very rapidly evolving their characteristics and getting more and more powerful every day, entire ecosystem uh, user bases have formed. So people like VW, we're, we're looking at um, using our processor to optimize traffic flow in Beijing right? Um, other people are looking at it to model the electronic structure of uh, complex molecules. There are people looking at to do optimization problems, um, like I described. It could be optimizing radiation therapy for a cancer patient or, you know, optimizing a, you know, portfolio to minimize risk. All of these things are being looked at now. We're kind of at this stage where I, I see we're kind of at like at a tipping point where you know, early generations of our computers had modest capabilities. They started becoming more and more powerful as we harnessed more quantum dynamics and built larger scale processors. Eventually, we started rivaling some of the most powerful single cores. Now, there are groups that take many cores and GPUs and specialized software to try to match some of our results. And uh, it's getting more powerful every day. Things get more powerful every day. That's the beauty of Fringe FM. What we've realized, what we think that the vast majority of overachievers realize is that it doesn't take 10x the effort to make 10x the result. If you're able to think about things a little bit differently, change your world focus, build a different team, and tackle different problems, you're able to create exponentially more impact in the world. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we hope you're trying to do. So just think about things a little bit differently. We hope this podcast has made you question some of your assumptions and made you think just a little bit bigger. So I, I the vision that I have for this is, you know, we could provide this resource to the world. And eventually, you know, some people have bought our prototype systems like, you know, Google and NASA, Los Alamos, Lockheed Martin, USC. Some visionary users have bought early prototypes and are developing algorithms for applications as well as looking at the foundational physics. But eventually, you know, you can see this being on the cloud with users all over the world having access to this dramatically or unimaginably more powerful resource and start optimizing those industries, start solving those big problems. And of course, you know, from a business standpoint, of course, you want to do good in the world and also have a thriving business. And those are not at odds, right? So we're building this capability and more and more, we have more and more users around the world accessing it and starting to imagine what you could do. So that's very exciting. It's incredible. The opportunities, they're enormous. And that's why you guys have raised close to $200 million. There's plenty of money to be made and plenty of plenty of use cases. When do you see, when do you see quantum computing reaching price parity with traditional? Well, it's an interesting question. So 
you know, we have some some users um, because it, it's funny. What's what's been really satisfying is that you know I'll go to these conferences, and you know, as one of the founders of the company, you know, I remember the early days with a few brilliant wizard scientists and you know, very modest resources and building early prototypes. And now there's a company where there's kind of worldwide attention. There's users from all over the world using it. So sometimes we'll hear from some of our users, we're already seeing benefits of your existing, you know, 2000 qubit processor in certain use cases. It's even hard to keep track of all of this. So we're starting to kind of work with these uh, uh, people in, in various industries uh, or, or scientific uh, or, or industrial and looking at what they're doing. You know, so some people are claiming they're starting to see advantages that are useful for them now. We, I think in the next few years, and usually the way this happens, it's not like um, quantum computing is not going to arrive. It's going to evolve. So I think it'll be the kind of thing, you know, if you look at the early microprocessors, it wasn't like, hey, look, I've got my Intel chip and I've got a, I've got a you know, a MacBook Pro. It sort of started like, um, hey, look, I, I don't have a lot of memory and I have limited processing power, but I can make a cash register, right, for this simple functionality. And well, this is having utility at scale. And then I have some, uh, something that can control an elevator going up and down. And I have, uh, and now I have a simple calculator that can, you know, with some limited functionality, but it's, it's really useful. So you see these applications start and then people ask, well, what could you do if you had more processing elements and larger memory? Well, of course, we've seen that evolution that's had a major impact on every industry and everything in the world. I think quantum computing is at that stage, uh, at least with respect to D-Wave, we've built a real physical platform that for you know some synthetic benchmarks were already beating very powerful classical systems. There's some evidence from some users that we may be providing value already. You know, cost you know, what you're calling cost parity, where it's, it, it would make more sense to use us than say some other platform. And I think in the next few years, certainly in the next somewhere two, three to five years, we're going to see quantum computers having impact in various industries and for various applications. I think that, you know, there's now this worldwide sort of awakening to this. When we started out, say, you know, real technology development 2004, there was this idea that quantum computing was 50 to 100 years away because of decoherence. It's so sensitive to these environmental factors and it'll decohere the streams and all that. But now that there are physical systems all over the world doing quantum computing, you know, some are small scale systems and laboratories all over the world, a larger scale system like, say, a D-Wave, and they're working and they're showing all the requisite physics. I think there's the world is awakening to the fact that this is not 50 years away and um, that it's going to start being useful and it'll start off and, you know, by the way, the other thing too is I, I often get asked, is this going to replace all classical computing? The answer is no, it's going to be used in, in a hybrid way. There are times when, you know, classical computers are great for a lot of what they do. I don't need a quantum computer to do PowerPoint or Excel or, you know, watch YouTube videos. Although sometimes, yeah, PowerPoint might, might, it might help. But there are those really intractable parts of the problem, right? Where, like I said, for FedEx, maybe there's the front end of a program setting up, you know, getting in some parameters and stuff. And then you say, okay, now I want to look through this vast number of alternatives. Well, that would take me to the age of the universe. Send that part of the problem off to that quantum processor, you know, in, in Burnaby and get the answer back and then, and then complete the program. So people are also looking at all these hybrid applications where you use classical computers for what they've already always been good for and will continue to be good for as they advance. And then for those really intractable parts of the problem where there's just this exponential explosion of alternatives you have to sort through, 
you know, quantum computers will play more and more of a role. And so I think the next few years are going to be fascinating. I mean, if you, um, like I said, just recently, there are things we discover every day. So we built this platform and there there are new things people are doing with it we didn't expect. So you get a lot of brilliant people from all over the world. Give them this toy that harnesses quantum dynamics at some scale with some level of controllability and scale. And people are finding all kinds of really interesting use cases. You know, I think, uh, you know, at Los Alamos, where they have one of our systems on site, you can go to their website and they have dozens, I don't know if it's 70, 100, you know, what they call proto apps in, in, in a vast array of different kind of application spaces. And there's companies that are arising building what they call quantum ready algorithms. There's a sense of inevitability now and that it's not that far away and that, you know, people are smart people starting to build companies and raise capital just to write algorithms for these evolving platforms like a D-Wave. So, yeah, I'd say stay tuned. Things are changing very rapidly. And the other thing that's going to, with that new perception of sort of inevitability and promise, there's tremendous investment going into this, right? So at D-Wave, we're this kind of standalone startup company where we have these visionary investors, but now, you know, some of our, our colleagues, you know, at Google and Microsoft and, you know, Intel and in Australia and China's ramping up multi-billion dollar programs. I think people are starting to understand that harnessing quantum dynamics for computation, as well as a whole host of other applications like, you know, much more precise metrology and communications, things like quantum teleportation, where you can teleport information, uh, it sort of disappears and appears in a remote location without transmitting that signal. So you'd have perfectly secure communications. You know, things like that are going on in communication and metrology and computation by harnessing this broader universe we become aware of uh, with quantum mechanics. Dang, I would like to talk for another half an hour or an hour. There's so much that I want to dive into. I actually I actually need to run and go do daddy duty. Sure. But I want to thank you for coming on today, Eric, and ask where is the best place for people to find you online, learn more about what you're doing, and if they've got an awesome project, reach out. Sure. Well, so there's, you know, D-Wave has a website. You can contact me or others there. You know, we have a whole team of people dedicated to sort of designing applications and working with, you know, external smart people. We're going to be, uh, you know, we'll have a cloud service at some point coming online in the not too distant future. And, and me personally, you know, I, I have some lectures online. If you type my name in, um, that kind of go through what I just said with pictures. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's not too hard to get a hold of us. And it's a, like I said, it's a, it's a really exciting time. And, and uh, I'll give you a, there was a, a sentiment, I'm not going to say it exactly right, but I got into physics uh, a long time ago when I was in seventh grade, I read a book called The Forces of Nature by a physicist named Paul Davies, who I think is like one of the, the great science expositors of our time. And he said something about um, the new quantum age. You know, he kind of said, you know, we had an industrial age in kind of the, the 19th century and the 20th century as we've experienced with the information age and that he believed that the 21st century will be the quantum age. And uh, I think that that's a, a fantastic sentiment that as human beings, we need to understand the world better. We need to solve some very pressing problems, but we also have to have a worldview that's ethical and inclusive and sees us as one species on this little spaceship and work together to preserve this, this beautiful blue ball. Couldn't have said it better. Eric, thanks so much for coming on. We'll have to do a, we'll have to do a round two now that everyone... You did actually a very quick, a quite a good job explaining quantum physics to the layperson. We'll have to do a round two where we go a bit deeper. Sure. 
Yeah, it was great talking with you. Awesome. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Hopefully this has been fun. And if it has, you know, fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Stitcher. You can subscribe, leave a review, share it with friends, and help us get more awesome guests like Eric on. Thanks. Cheers. Take care. Hey, hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM to support our mission? Yes, you heard that right. Tax-deductible. You can support us in the work we do and all the good that we're trying to accomplish in the world, or you can save your tax dollars for the tax man. It's your choice. We like to think we're a bit more efficient and important for the world and hope you do too. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit that's focused on advancing science worldwide. This means that you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation. All of these would greatly impact the level of good we're able to do in the world and the quality of show we're able to produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. And really, if you care about our mission in the world and the work that we're doing, please consider supporting our efforts. You are quite literally deciding whether or not we continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, it's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.